Galatians 3. I'm going to read the first 14 verses, although as we get into it, uh, it'll be clear that this is going to come in a couple of different parts because we're actually going to get through verse 1 and then significantly pick up the pace next week. Nevertheless, um, the, the section that we're going after, um, the thought is verses 1 through 14. So follow along. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanksgiving for the text of your word. Father, we are privileged, privileged people to have you as the creator and the sustainer of all things reveal yourself to your creation. And not just to reveal yourself at one point in time, but to reveal yourself in a written word and preserve it for all generations to read in hope that you by it might show us Christ. So show us Christ this morning. Show us Christ again in all of his glory and majesty so that we might afresh be filled with faith in his finished work and worship of his great name. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Tell me what you think of when I give you this short list. This has to do with the way that we opened last week. So if you weren't here last week, this may be like from left field. White Bronco. Bloody Shoe Print. Size 12. Bruno Maglis, I believe the way you pronounce that. How about this one? It's a clincher. Bloody gloves. 
The word that describes those items is evidence, right? Evidence is necessary to make a case. Without it, you have nothing more than baseless assertions and accusations in considering that the Apostle Paul is not interested in engaging in that kind of a battle with his opponents in the churches of Galatia. In this letter, he, prays, he places an absolute premium on evidence. The evidence comes in two forms in the letter. We've already seen one form, which I'm calling the experiential form or the subjective form. Paul turned the corner in our text last week toward this side of evidence as he walked his readers through his own autobiography from his conversion on the road to Damascus through the first 14 years of his life in Christ. And he made that effort in order to remind his readers that he learned his gospel directly from Jesus himself. And he received his commission as an apostle from him in that same encounter, and he began preaching that gospel almost immediately after his conversion. Paul says there in that lengthy interaction that he only had two interactions with the apostles in Jerusalem in the first 14 years of his life in Christ, one three years in, and the second one coming 11 years later. Both sought out by Paul himself. And both times Paul left those interactions with the affirmation from the apostles there concerning his gospel and his calling as the apostle to the Gentiles. And when the apostle Peter himself came to Antioch and his life began to confuse the gospel and cause others to stumble... Paul demonstrated the exact thing he was seeking to prove to the churches of Galatia, that the gospel has authority over all men. And in the gospel, Peter's actions there were condemning him as a hypocrite. So for the sake of the gospel in Antioch, its preservation in the church there, the apostle Paul confronts Peter publicly over his hypocrisy. So last week we saw both sides, really. We saw a life transformed by the gospel that served as compelling evidence of its truth and of its power. And we saw a life that in a moment of hypocrisy blurred and confused the gospel. And we were challenged, at least hopefully, we were challenged with the weight of our own autobiographies as the most compelling experiential, subjective kind of evidence that the gospel, which centers on justification by faith alone and delivers sinners from this present evil age into a new age which is already dawned in the person and the work of Jesus, that that gospel is true and it's powerful to convert and to transform by God's grace through the Spirit. Or... Our lives serve as compelling evidence to the contrary. In this next section of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 14, Paul is going to continue to present compelling evidence for the truth of the gospel that he hoped to reestablish in the churches of Galatia. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, he's going to press, he's going to press the experiential side of evidence even further. 
And he's going to identify the gift of the Holy Spirit as evidence for justification by faith, not just with him, but with his readers as well. Following that, he's going to breach the second realm of compelling evidence. He is going to ground their subjective experience in the objective evidence of Scripture in verses 7 through 14. He's going to ground the gospel that centers on justification by faith in Jesus as our substitute. And he's going to show his readers that the gospel he is rehearsing for them was, in fact, the gospel according to the scriptures. So this presents to us a pretty significant need because we live in a world where compelling evidence is no guarantee for a just verdict. Nor is it even required to support an accusation or even ground an assertion today. And I'm not necessarily saying that's new to our day at all, because Paul's opponents had apparently won over the churches of Galatia with a number of baseless accusations and assertions against him. But like him, brothers and sisters, we don't play by this world's rules. Why don't we play by this world's rules? Because our God has left compelling evidence for the truth of the gospel that we proclaim. He's left us, his people, whom he transforms by the power of his spirit through the gospel as compelling evidence of the subjective kind. And God has revealed and preserved his word in a book that most of us hold in our hands this morning called the Bible. That serves as compelling evidence of the objective kind. And brothers and sisters, in this text, in this letter, Paul is showing us that we must provide both. A gospel that centers on a justification by faith that is grounded in the substitutionary death of Jesus as the text of scripture explains it. And a gospel that is evidenced powerfully by the transformed lives of those who profess to believe in it. We need both because the subjective side of evidence needs the objective side of evidence because the text of Scripture explains and it clarifies and it grounds the experience. I, uh, I had to insert here a personal reflection because I... I vividly remember this own reality in my experience. Um, Those of you that don't know my story, I was converted through a sermon that I stumbled across in my car on my lunch break at work in 1997. At the time of my conversion, I had absolutely no idea what happened to me. But I did know something happened to me. The content of my knowledge of the Bible and of the person and work of Jesus and of conversion at the time was exclusively what I remembered from the the single 20-minute sermon that I heard that day. I had absolutely no explanation for the dramatic changes that were happening in my heart, and I don't even think early on that I even knew the words to attempt to describe it. I knew no other Bible verses than the ones the guy on the radio was explaining, but I probably couldn't find them again if my life depended on it. 
To my knowledge, I did not know what a Christian was or even what that label meant. And I didn't even know whether or not I had ever even met one. What I do remember, though, is two guys from my past whose lives a few years before had radically changed. I didn't know to what they had changed, but really at that time I didn't even care. So I called one of them up and hoped that the same things that I was experiencing were what he had also experienced and that he might be able to grant some clarity or give some explanation as to this craziness that was happening in my life. So I called him up and I asked him if he would take me, meet up with me sometime that week and take me with him to church um, on Sunday. And, And when this guy and I met up. I did my best to explain what had happened to me and what was happening to me. I had no explanation why I was listening to AM radio on my lunch break or why I kept listening to the first sermon that I ever heard in my life. And again, I had absolutely no explanation why my life was so dramatically changing. I I do, um, again, pretty vividly remember somebody who was watching this unfold in the early days following my conversion saying to me in a very unfavorable way, you're not one of those born-agains, are you? To which at the time I responded, what what is that? What's a born-again? But as I did my best in my ignorance to explain to this friend of mine what happened in my car when I heard that sermon and everything that was happening in my life since, my friend did have a confident explanation of my experience. And his confident explanation was not grounded in his own opinion. His clarifying explanation of my experience came jumping off the pages of the scriptures that he was opening to me and showing me from his Bible. And it clarified everything that was happening to me because what I was experiencing in the immediate hours and days and weeks following my conversion to my absolute ignorance at the time was exactly what scripture promises will happen to a person who's been regenerated by the power of the Spirit through the preaching of the word, who has died in union with Jesus in his death and has been raised to life and faith with Jesus in his resurrection and justified by faith alone in the person and work of Christ alone. The experiential side of evidence needs the scriptural side because scripture explains, it clarifies, and it grounds the experience, but... The scriptural side needs the experiential as well because the experiential serves as compelling evidence for the truth and power of the scriptural. So what I'm saying to you this morning is let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven and... Not but. If I were to say but, preach the word, then I would be minimizing the subjective. I would be minimizing the experiential side and suggesting that the real value lies in the objective. And if the subjective experience of the gospel accompanies it, then bonus. But not necessary. And if you can show me a text from Scripture that even remotely begins to go that route, I will say, let your light shine, but 
More importantly, preach the word. But since that verse does not exist to my knowledge, and compelling evidence does exist for the complementary nature of the subjective and the objective sides of evidence for the truth of the gospel, I'm sticking with and. I'm sticking with let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven and preach the word because it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart and by it, Peter says, we are born again. In the, in the rhetoric of Paul's day, chapter 3, which is where we've kind of breached this week, would begin his proof section, where he presents arguments for his main thesis, which he's just stated in chapter 2, verse 15 and 16. So re- remember, I, I quoted a guy named Tom Schreiner last week. Who said that chapter fifteen, verse chapter two, verses fifteen through twenty-one is the key to the rest of the letter? Meaning, Paul unpacks and he explains those verses in the rest of the letter. So, if if that was his thesis that he sets out now in the remainder of the letter to provide evidence for its truthfulness, and I, I think this is exactly what Paul does, beginning in our text, he's providing evidence. He's providing scriptural evidence that explains our experience in the gospel and scriptural evidence that grounds our gospel assertions of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So here's just a preview of where we're going. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, there is an appeal to the evidence of experience specifically the experience of his readers. It's based on six rhetorical questions that drive toward one answer in verse 6 that Paul grounds in Scripture. Then in chapter 3, verse 7 through verse 13, Paul grounds his thesis for justification by faith in the death of Jesus according to the Scriptures. Moises Silva, who has written some extensively helpful things in Galatians, says the sheer number of citations within such short compass, six of them in the course of seven or eight sentences, is worthy of note. A comparable density is found only in the catena of Romans 3 and in the torrent of Romans 9 and 10. And the way that you should process that is to see that Paul is saturating this section of his letter in Scripture. So he's most likely making a very important point. Up until this point in the letter, there have been two clear appeals to Scripture, and both were at extremely significant points. So if you recall chapter 1, when Paul invoked God's curse on all who proclaim and believe a false gospel, he appealed to the imagery of that which was, or those who were, identified as the enemies of God and set apart for destruction. 
It showed us then that his taking on his opponents in the churches of Galatia was not about him, but it was, in fact, about the gospel. His opponents were condemned on the basis of the gospel that they were distorting. And Paul appealed to this well-known Old Testament imagery to identify what was happening in the churches of Galatia, not as a minor thing at all, but as a condemning and a satanic distortion that was going to leave people under God's curse rather than under his blessing through justification by faith alone in Christ alone, which happens to be the next place in the letter that he grounds what he says in Old Testament scripture. And that is chapter 2, verse 15 and verse 16. And in that text, Paul doesn't just ground it in Scripture. He grounds it and he surrounds it. In a text from each part of the three-part division of the Old Testament, Genesis 15, 6, Psalm 143 and verse 2, and Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. So, So I rehearsed that to you just to say as we're, thinking about how to read this letter, I think in this letter Paul is doing something very intentional. At every major turn in this letter, in his effort to reestablish the gospel in the churches of Galatia, he is grounding what he says in Scripture. And in chapter 3, verse 6 through verse 13, he is saturating it. He's unleashing an almost incomparable torrent of Scripture in his effort to ground justification by faith and the atoning death of Jesus according to the Scriptures. And finally, in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul draws a brief conclusion. And its conclusion has two parts. First, that the experience of the Spirit given as a gift to all who believe, is the mark that the new age has dawned. And second, that both Jews and Gentiles alike partake in this by faith alone. So here we begin this two-week, maybe three-week effort to work through that outline. Paul's appeal to experience, explained by Scripture, And Paul's appeal to Scripture as the grounds for the gospel that he's proclaiming. And then finally, his conclusions, which will be our applications. So let's start with chapter 3, verses 1 through through 6. Paul's appeal to experience as evidence. He's just appealed to his own autobiography as compelling evidence for the truth of the gospel. But the appeal in chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, isn't to himself. It is to his readers, however. On almost any level, what he does here would be considered risky at best, foolish at worst. The people to whom he's writing and appealing here were not in this moment on his side of the argument If chapter 1 didn't make that clear when Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, then the way he opens chapter 3 will, because I actually think he's returning to that same point that he made in that text early in chapter 1 when he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? These are people that he's 
appealing to on the basis of their profession as his brothers and his sisters in Christ who have deserted God and the gospel of his son. And Paul here is trying to wake them out of what he's describing here as a satanic sleep. Which Martin Luther says the whole unbelieving world is under. So when I talk about Paul doing something risky, if not foolish here, he has presented his own life as evidence for the truth of his gospel, but now he is appealing to the lives of those under a satanic sleep as evidence for the truth of the gospel that they were currently denying themselves. In every other realm, then the gospel, what Paul is doing here, would be considered risky or crazy. But in the gospel alone, what Paul is doing here is right. And it's full of faith. On the basis of what Paul knew the gospel objectively to promise, and what Paul himself subjectively experienced the gospel to effectively deliver in fulfillment of the promise, Paul does what he does here. If you have read the book or seen the movie Unbroken, assuming this part of the book is in the movie because I've read the book but not seen the movie, you will recall on the raft as exposure and dehydration and hunger and hopelessness began to set in among the three men, Louis, Phil, and Mac, while they were adrift at sea. Louis particularly began to be concerned about his own sanity and the sanity of the other two men with him. So the three men begin telling each other stories from their past. Remember? Singing each other songs. Sharing with each other Again, if you remember, details of previous life events, in particular the ones that stand out and that the book emphasizes are of the meals that Louis's mother would make. And these men would quiz each other over those details as days passed and it kept their minds sharp and sane. And I think Paul is doing something similar here. He is appealing to what he knew to be the details of his reader's experience in the gospel as evidence for the gospel that he proclaimed. In essence, he's reminding these bewitched brothers and sisters by the details of their own experience in the gospel of who they are in Christ. And to us, there is this crazy risk factor here that might kill his entire argument. But to Paul, there is no risk factor at all because he is full of confidence, not in their response, but in God and how in his sovereign goodness, by the power of his spirit, the gospel works itself out in the lives of those whom God justifies on the basis of blood bought, spirit given faith. And Paul knows the experience that he has rehearsed from his own life. And the one to which he is appealing in his readers is universal. 
because it's based on God's unfailing promise and fulfilled effectually by his spirit. So Paul can fearlessly appeal to the experience of his readers, even though they oppose the gospel that he was trying to proclaim among them, because he knows that in the gospel, their experience would prove his gospel, not theirs. If I were to do to you in any other realm of controversy what Paul is doing here, I would run a major risk of having my point completely undermined by you coming back and saying, that's not how I experienced the story at all. And we would have to just part company saying, well, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree. But Paul here is demonstrating unflinching confidence in God and his gospel. And in his effort to appeal to his reader's experience in the gospel, he's doing the same as Louis, Phil, and Mac were doing for each other to wage war against the insanity that was creeping up on them with greater intensity as the days continued to pass. Lost at sea, Paul is here reminding his readers of who they are in Christ as an expression of his hope that God might use the evidence of his readers' own experience in the gospel to awaken them out of their satanic slumber and bring them to repentance and renewed faith in his gospel. Otherwise, as Paul says he fears in verse 4, their profession might prove to be in vain. So, a contradictory response to his questions from his readers here still would not negate his point. It would actually prove his point. If Paul invokes his readers' experience in the gospel and God uses it to awaken them out of their slumber and bring them to repentance and renewed faith in the true gospel, it would serve as compelling evidence for the truth of his gospel because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. But if his readers refuse him and continue to embrace a distorted gospel, it too would serve as compelling evidence for the truth of his gospel because if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are not illegitimate, then you are illegitimate children and you are not sons. So Paul's method in this text is to ask his readers a series of six rhetorical questions. The answer that he is expecting from each one of these questions is implied in the question itself. The first question is verse 1. The word we've been talking about is bewitched. Who has bewitched you, he asks. And the implied answer is, well, on on the one hand, it's his opponents. It's the ones in the churches of Galatia proclaiming a distorted gospel and spreading lies about Paul in the churches. But I actually think he's getting at something deeper here by his question, because the, the who has bewitched you in verse 1 is singular. So he seems to be pointing to an individual here as his ultimate answer. And according to, again, Martin Luther, 
and Timothy George and many, many others, Paul is identifying the devil himself who is the father of lies. And who walks about as a roaring lion seeking someone to seize upon and devour. So look at Paul's response to his own question. Paul says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul is talking about through his preaching here. Listen to this, what I thought was a really helpful explanation of this by Timothy George. He says, in in effect, Paul is saying to them, how can you have been so deceived by these heretics when in your mind's eye, Jesus was, as it were, impaled on the cross of Calvary right before you? Yes, you've actually seen Christ crucified, plastered on a billboard. That's what the word publicly portrayed means. And he's asking his Readers, how could you ever lose sight of that? What he's getting at here is not just that image, but the meaning of it as well. Why do the Galatians not see that the gospel of grace plus the law is a distortion of the true gospel? According to Paul in this text, It was because they have lost sight of the crucified. Whom Paul is once again portraying before their mind's eye as impaled on the cross of Calvary to bear their sins and risen from the dead for their justification. A scene and a reality that his readers had lost sight of. And if Martin Luther's right, then the whole world is bewitched from seeing which is why we must do what Paul is doing and preach Christ crucified. Set him before people's eyes as impaled on a cross as our sin bearer and risen from the dead for our justification. We preach that scene again and again and again to each other because our enemy remains on the prowl to bewitch and if it happened to them, it can happen to us, and maybe it's happened to you. So we need Christ crucified placed vividly before our eyes and Christ risen from the dead deep down in our hearts. And Paul is proclaiming this again to his readers as his effort to be used by the Spirit to help them snap out of the spell that they were under to reinsert works to the finished work of Christ on the cross and the gospel of his resurrection from the dead. And and this first verse, this first question, this first answer, this first image with its meaning is actually where I'm going to stop this morning. Because what we are going to do next is the visual equivalent to what I've just spoken in word from the word. And my prayer for you is if you are here seeking evidence that you will have heard it from the word proclaimed 
that you will in a moment see it in the ordinance that Jesus has left the church to visually proclaim and celebrate his finished work. And that you will be convinced by a room full of redeemed sinners who profess to stake every ounce of their hope of forgiveness and justification and eternal life in Christ and Christ alone. And if, dear brother or sister, you have lost sight of the crucified, then may God use these words by the power of his spirit and the bread and the cup and those who by faith partake to wake you out of your slumber to repentance and to renewed faith in Jesus. Which is the way that I now am going to close in prayer as Chris comes and prepares to serve communion. Father in heaven, we prayed before we opened your word. We prayed in the form of a song. Show us Christ. O God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. And we've spent the morning in a verse where Paul is confronting his readers for losing sight of the very thing that we've prayed you would show us. Christ impaled on the cross to bear our sins and risen from the dead victoriously for our justification. Father, we've, we've heard it. And with Paul in his words here, we've had Christ portrayed to us again in that way through word. And now, Lord, as we have the chance to visually, even, even by taste, see Christ on the cross bearing our sin with the assurance that he's risen from the dead. And we are united to him by your grace. Remind us of who we are in Christ and all that is ours and bring us if need be to repentance and renewed faith in him and him alone. And bring sinners to yourself this morning who do not currently profess to believe in Jesus. Lord, all of these are miraculous works that you promise to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.